the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, here we are at Fighter World and another great interview. Squadron leader, Bernie Niebenfuhr. Now, Bernie joined the RAAF in 1980 as a radio technician trainee. Twelve months later, he was re-employed as an education assistant. He then posted to a training and development role at Point Cook. In 1983, he deployed to the Sinai Peninsula in the Middle East and joined the multi-role force and observers, an international peacekeeping force overseeing the terms of the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. In reality, Bernie went there to sail around the Greek islands with a boatload of Kiwis. He then had postings to 3 Control and Reporting Unit, 481 Maintenance Squadron, and then RAAF Base Ambly in 1986. He was promoted promoted to sergeant and posted to School of Languages in 1989 and then promoted to FSGT while at Headquarters Training Command. Bernie was commissioned as a flying officer in 1995 and posted to Directorate of Postings Officers, followed by a series of administrative officer positions at 2 Operation Conversion Unit, Headquarters Support Command, a 3CRU and later his first senior admino appointment at 44WG. In 2003, he deployed to Middle East Area Operations as Executive Officer, C-130 Combat Squadron. In 2005, he was posted and promoted to Squadron Leader Admin to serve with Headquarters Survival and Response Group. He transferred to the RAAF Active Reserve in March 2007. Bernie was hired by an organisation to be the Capability Reporting Specialist for Headquarters Surveillance and Response Group. In October 2009, Bernie won a new position at Airborne Early Warning and Control SPO to establish a modelling capability for the platform. He left AEWC SPO in early 2019 as the Enterprise Manager at Wedgetail and took up a reserve position as the base liaison officer at Williamtown for the Centenary team. Currently, Bernie is the manager of Fighter World Museum, where we are right now. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning, Gareth. How are you going today? Tell me about Fighter World before we start talking about you. Well, Fighter World is is uh, the the leading community engagement uh, outlet for uh, RAF Williamtown, and uh, has a marvelous collection of um, of her- heritage aircraft, and 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 some not so old uh, as well. So, whilst I've only been here uh, for about a year and a half, now I've I've really uh, warmed to the role, and it uh, and it's been actually really quite stimulating, a lot of fun, and uh, I, I, there's a great bunch of fellas here to work with, uh, and, and ladies too. It's been a very nice start to uh, to a new job. How important is it? as a link between RAAF existing and the general public. Well, it's a growing link, in fact, and uh, it wasn't that long ago that we were deemed to be really quite separate in that the Air Force didn't have a particularly active uh, uh, history and heritage directorate for quite some time, whereas Fighter World had already been in existence for uh, for almost 30 years, 
and uh, and operated quite independently from the base. Uh, we were seen as uh, a separate enterprise, whereas more recently, and particularly since uh, History and Heritage uh, has uh, become a, a branch with a with a one-star uh, Director General, we have come in somewhat underneath the, the History and Heritage uh, arm of the Air Force and as the RAF Williamtown Aviation uh, Heritage Centre. So that's given us a, a much closer linkage with Air Force. It demonstrates um, through some you know recent uh, sponsoring and funding of, of our uh, infrastructure uh, plans that they want to have some skin in the game and that's and that's great too. With this year being the centenary, do you get people coming through who, when looking at the various items that you have on display, are suddenly struck that this is a hundred-year history of this organisation? Well, I hope so, because we've gone to some lengths to erect and, uh, and form uh, a centenary display, which will be in place for the, for the entire year. So we've just recently completed the Sopwith Camel uh, replica, which is just looking quite resplendent in, uh, in the main display hangar. Uh, and it's joined by the, uh, the terrific windjill that we have, a rigid dig uh, windjill, and also PC9, which we took delivery of last year. So that provides a, a four-flight come four squadron focus of the aircraft but certainly we have paraphernalia and and banners just to demonstrate that we're right behind the air force turning 100 and we're right there um celebrating with them now we better focus on bernie the man rather than bernie <laughs> looking after fighter world you joined in 1980 why what was your motivation i decided that um it was time to um i suppose look for a career that, that, that you know give me some scope to grow to take me places where i hadn't been before I'd already been in the workforce for a year or two, and yeah, it was it was time to uh, shoot for something a little higher. And uh, I looked at the air force as being really a, the, the preeminent um, defence force um, service. And no, I was tickled pink when I was uh, accepted to uh, to join. When you were accepted to join, I mean, were there then choices laid out for you as to which area you can follow? Because I noticed that you became a rad tech or a radio technician. Mm. How did that eventuate? Well, yeah, no, I had um, I had some good uh, good results uh, uh, from my psych testing, so that gave me um, a, a lot of options, and that was great. But I, I had uh, pretty much joined with the uh, with the view to to be a radio technician, and I thought that would be a, a lot of fun, and it, it seemed like a, an enthralling um, job to uh, to be in. But uh, but alas, uh, whilst I was okay at the uh, the theory, I seemed to be all thumbs with the, uh, with, the with the practical and didn't make the grade. So it was a pretty <laughs> tough course, I found. <laughs> So when that happens with someone who has joined up, that what they were interested in isn't quite what they thought it was going to be or quite appropriate for them, how do you make a change? I mean, you ended up then as an education assistant at Point Cook. So what were the steps leading there? Well, I felt it was just too uh, too early to uh, to turn my back on the Air Force. And, and, and indeed, I was uh, you know, found suitable to, um, to re-muster to, to a number of, of, of musterings. I suppose my confidence had taken a little bit of a hit at that stage, so... Um, I probably um, uh, swung away from the other aircraft trades, but yeah, look, I, I knew at that stage one or two people had uh, reformed in, in, into uh, the, the education assistant mustering, and it looked good. And um, and, and I had a, f- a fantastic run of, of postings uh, throughout the next uh, ten or yeah. twelve years. Yeah, you said when that you took a bit of a hit and that that lost confidence. Back then, were there people within the RAF that were supportive? Oh sure, yeah. Look, I had uh, uh, you know senior NCOs at uh, at the School of Radio that were very supportive, 
And, and look, there would have been an officer or two along the way that, that laid out uh, that I had some options and that I was, I was, I was recommended for remaster. So that was, I, I guess that was satisfying. So it did give me some confidence that uh, perhaps I should yeah, give something else a, a bit of a go. I wasn't ready to, uh, to pull up stumps just yet. I'd only been in the Air Force for about a year or so. No, quite, I was quite happy that uh, I was given some options and I was very happy with the choices that I made. Well, let's jump to 1983, which is not very long after you originally joined. You deployed to the Sinai. How did that come about and what was that like? The way it came about actually was was quite uh, unusual because I'd had that um, that role on my radar for a period uh, and, uh, and knew one or two people had deployed to the Sinai, after which the tensions between Israel and Egypt had really uh, escalated. I'd had a expression of interest in for a, for a period. I withdrew that expression of interest only for a few months later to actually to get uh, get the nod anyway. So off I went. I, I figured at that stage it was it was fate. So my role was the uh, the technical publications uh, officer. So as uh, as the uh, the officer and, and clerk of, of of the collection, I was responsible for making sure that all the technical literature, data, and publications were in in top notch order. And and that was uh, it was an unusual place to actually cut my teeth in that role because you know we had a close link with this. Israeli aircraft industries who actually completed uh, or undertook the deeper level maintenance on the Iroquois aircraft that we operated over there. So um, from from the Sinai, I would trip to the uh, the larger uh, IAI installations uh, a couple times uh, a quarter and inspect their um, their publications and, uh, and and documentation. And so to their credit, they did a great job. It was an expansive experience for you then, more than what you originally thought when you were going. Oh, very much so. Yeah, it uh, it really took me places that um, I didn't expect. It was my first representational role and function, and I had a lot of fun. Mm. Yeah, it's an important period of history. The early eighties and the peacekeeping between Egypt and Israel. How did you see that, or how do you see that now, looking back on it, and the RAAF's role? The base there at uh, El Gora, um, underpinning the um, the uh, multinational force and observers, is still there. The army have a couple. Uh, uh, advisors in uh, in place so it, it's a testament to a large degree that of the success of that institution I guess that uh, 10 countries are committed to back in the late 70s as a result of the uh, the Camp David Accords and look I, I thought it was important that um, that Australia have a role we had of course a, a, a central role with with operating the 10 uh, Iroquois helicopters by all accounts really uh, at every corner we, we, we did a, a, a great job I think and the deployments were a full success until we pulled out some five years later let's just jump across the Mediterranean from Egypt to the Greek mainland and the Greek islands. What's this I hear about you wanting to sail with Kiwis and do it around the... Did you fit that in or was that just a dream? No, that, I didn't manage to fit that in. A bunch of Kiwis, so, uh, for that uh, 10 aircraft operational deployment uh, that we had there, there was a bunch of uh, uh, Kiwis uh, involved as well. So not only were there one or two Kiwi aircraft but a bunch of uh, Kiwi technicians. So uh, as I found out, a bunch of them were, were very keen sailors. They'd booked themselves on a trip. They needed a spare deckhand. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I was their uh, bunny. And, uh, I mean, these guys were, were pretty darn good. They could uh, – most of them had yachts. They could they all raced yachts. So I was in good hands. But uh, it, it was a lot of fun sailing around the Greek islands. It was a, it was a hoot. Now, just out of interest, I've never really explored in my own mind the relationship between New Zealand and Australia with the RAAF and the 
the New Zealand Air Force. What what was that like? Well, it was it was a very close relationship. So we flew over, for example, on a C one thirty that belonged to the uh, RNZAF. You know, six months later, flew back with a with a with an Aussie C one thirty H. Not only do we have both skin in the game, I, I think they supplied also some twin otter aircraft from memory, two twin otter planes, and they operated between El Gora and uh, and Cairo and, and and Europe when when needed. It was a, a an arrangement of, of great synergy, and um, now it was great to work side by side with the Kiwis. They, they were good, uh, good types. That's great. It's nice to know, hearing from people like you, that the relationship we have with our allies, New Zealand, the United States, Great Britain, is it, in the services especially, is a very, very strong one. Oh, yeah, I believe it is. And, uh, you know, we have just so many commonalities. Their technicians that worked uh, side by side with ours, they were terrific. You know, they had one or two female technicians, as we did. None deployed when I was there. But, uh, no, it was a great working relationship, and uh, I think everyone enjoyed it. I'm confused. We go to 1989, and you promoted... You got a promotion in the language schools. Does that mean you're multilingual? Yeah, I can speak English as well as uh, Aussie, and... uh, (laughs) But that's no, two. That's two. <laughs> I had the opportunity, in fact, to uh, to pick up a language or two. But uh, as it turned out, I, I did the uh, the skills test and found that uh, I, I didn't have a particular aptitude necessarily to uh, to learn another uh, uh, language or two. But no, I just found myself uh, that was a regular posting to to support the uh, the training development and support flight. At, uh, at the School of Languages, and uh, yeah, and no, I had, had three terrific years there. Bernie, w- what does the School of Language actually do? I'm sorry to be confused, but... Oh, not at all. So, it was a, a tri-service uh, unit uh, administered by, by the Air Force, a, a, as it was at the time, uh, teaching all the foreign language requirements that uh, the ADF had. So, that included, of course, uh, Indonesian, which was the biggest department, um, but also some smaller you know, niche... Um, areas uh, such as uh, the Vietnamese department, um, Japanese, Burmese, uh, German, French uh, and, and so on. So there, there were from memory about um, eight to ten language departments and uh, that, that later became an arm of the, the international um, or Defence International mm, uh, mm. School of Languages where, where English was taught to, uh, to, to visiting foreign um, uh, members of, of uh, okay. foreign forces. Yeah, you, you've been in the air force now for nine plus years. Then I'm not talking now. Yep. Did you have time for establishing relationships with a lady of your choice? Well, it was uh, actually during my first posting to, to Williamtown after returning from the Sinai that um, that I met someone, and um, yeah, so we uh, formed a relationship and. We uh, we maintained that even though I was posted about midway through to uh, to Amberley uh, to take up the post in Friday One uh, Squadron. Sorry, it was Friday Two, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so we continued and uh, later married. So that was well, uh, that was nice. So even then, there's time in the RAAF for marriage. Yeah, of, of course there is. And at last, that's good to hear. <laughs> All right, you're married. You, you get finally get married. But let's go over to 1995, and you're now a flying officer. And right. you are sent to the Directorate of Postings Officers. What's that? Well, DPO. So back then, uh, the Directorate of Postings uh, was 
well, it was, it was split into two. You had you had DPO, which looked after officers, and then DPA, which looked after airmen. And uh, I was posted into the uh, into the officer side in what was called uh, POMAN 1A, but in, in essence, it was the uh, the wing commander career management cell that also looked after group captains. So yeah, we we had um, a few hundred senior officers to look after, and uh, I worked with a couple of squadron leaders and a wing commander, and uh, and that was a great uh, great posting. G- gave me an insight how how the um, the inner workings of uh, of senior officer postings uh, worked, and and uh, and how it actually came about. So what in looking after what do you do? What, what is your role? Well, my role was to uh, to perform quite a few of the, the technical aspects, cutting, posting messages, for example, um, formulating some of the uh, some of the paperwork, uh, but also actually getting on the phone and um, and ringing up senior wing commanders and group captains and and giving them good news that uh, they, they were they were selected to go on a uh, on a uh, a bit of a jolly um, you know few month training course. So that, that was generally a good uh, a good thing to do. They uh, would be chuffed and um, and suddenly would be uh, posting them off somewhere, and, and that was a lot of fun too. So it's almost an HR role, human resources, or oh, most certainly. Well, all, all of the uh, the DPO and, and, and DPA um, directorates were essentially the career management uh, uh, hubs for uh, for all Air Force personnel. And uh, yeah, it is uh, one of the you know the um, the more complicated, um, but uh, very very specified uh, HR functions uh, within the Air Force. Mm. I've always been fascinated in all of the Defence Forces in the process of moving up the ranks, as it were. You you do become a squadron leader. Can you tell us how that was achieved and why that was achieved? I guess when when you move through the ranks, uh, the first few ranks in the the officer area are time promotion. So you can become a, a flight lieutenant after a few years just after a certain period of time. But, yeah, to be promoted squadron leader, it's, it's a first uh, competitive uh, competitively won um, promotion and uh, I'd been a, a flight lieutenant for, uh, for a number of years and uh, obviously w- worked my way to a competitive state where I was selected. So it's always a, a, a very you know, nice feeling when you're selected, uh, selected in, in a competitive field. So I, I really uh, you know, took that with open arms. It, it, it provides the next step, I suppose, in your, in your learning development and, um, and you get to exercise the skills that you've accumulated uh, when you've been you know, at the sort of senior levels in your previous mm. rank. The terms air commander, wing commander, squadron leader, all in the title have an implicit meaning as to in charge of things that fly. Now, thus far, you're not a pilot. So what does the word squadron leader actually mean for someone who doesn't know what it means? So the squadron leader rank is uh, is the the first level of uh, of the senior uh, officer categories. At that rank, it provides the ability in the right circumstances to command. So there are... Still, from time you know, in certain places, you know, small units and, and areas or, or detachments uh, that can be uh, led and commanded by a squadron leader in wartime, as the name would suggest. And in days gone by, certainly, you could have uh, commanded a squadron independent flying unit, whereas today and, and for some time, wing commanders. Uh, which is the next level up, mm. have, have tended to be the commanding officers for flying mm. uh, flying units. And, and for good reason. They're, they're relatively large units, a lot of responsibility, uh, having 10 to 20 aircraft um, um, in the hangars. So, uh, but, yeah, that's how it uh, comes about. 9-11 occurs in the early 2000s. In 2003, you're sent to the Middle East area of operations. 
Can you give us the background to that and what it was like? Yeah, at the time, that location we were posted to was uh, was classified, and so we couldn't even really tell our loved ones precisely where we were heading in the uh, Middle East area. A central role in that we operate, that is the RAAF, operate a number of C-130 aircraft over there, and uh, and I was posted to be the, the uh, executive officer of the the combat support unit uh, that underpinned the C-130 operations. So I did put my hand up for it, had to do a little bit of uh, executive officer training before I left, and, you know, had, uh, all in all, had, had, a, had a really good time. It, w- it was tough at times. We did some long days, but it was all part and parcel of of, mm. of the role in a um, operational sense, and it was a it was a great experience. And what was the relationship like with the other foreign units in that area at that time with the RAAF? Oh well, very good. We had uh, close synergies with the Canadians, for example, whilst they were operating P three aircraft a little way uh, further from uh, from where we were in uh, in the UAE, but. I got over to see to see the Canadians from time to time, and of course on the location where we were, um, dominated by by American forces uh, and uh, and American aircraft, we were a smaller cog perhaps, and that we only operated two C-130s. But during my time there, I have to say we actually deployed for the first time the C-130J aircraft, the latest variant that we had at the time, and uh, we worked through some of the the technical difficulties that were that uh, the technicians faced. Uh, and the pilots operating that aircraft in, in the uh, in the location, but all those challenges were overcome. And um, can and you tell us what those challenges were? Tell us about the C one thirty. Well, C one thirty J was uh, the the first transport aircraft that we had at the time that actually had a full a full glass uh, cockpit. And by that I mean it had it was a fully dig- digitised uh, set of instruments instead of analog. So. The, the cockpit was full of LCD displays and you know, backed up with um, digital uh, electronics behind it. And we found they weren't quite so uh, robust in a particularly hot environment. On the Strip, for example, there were no shelters for the C-130s. The period of the morning before they would you know, typically operate... Uh, in that in that short few hours, the the cockpit temperatures would reach uh, around eighty degrees C, and um, wow. and the glass co- cockpits were just frying, and they were they were blowing components and circuit boards, and uh, that was a real problem for the guys for a period. But they overcame that. They they learnt ways of of, uh, of keep, you know, keeping the temperatures down in, in the cockpits, and and they they hopefully, happily operated the aircraft uh, once they you know, overcome those obstacles, you know, for uh, for a few years after that. So it was, it was uh, if there's a problem. Find a solution. That's yeah. always the way. Yeah, indeed. Um, you get in 2007 transferred to what's RAAF Active Reserve. What is that word? I'm not quite sure with the reserve part of it because you're still a full time employee with the RAF. I wasn't. I'd, I'd left at that stage the, the permanent Air Force. It was not my full time role in, anymore at that uh, at that stage. But I did find there was a, there was a need to fulfil an active reserve role, somewhat in a full time capacity. It was, it was kind of strange, but uh, really specific uh, area of the of the the reserves where you can in fact uh, fulfil fill a full-time role for a period but you're not part of the permanent air force but at any rate i did that for um for a year or so and that was good because it was it was uh, in a role that i was i was quite familiar with supporting uh, headquarters srg and also 41 wing and uh had a bit of a dual role. That was a good stepping stone because it gave me time to actually, you know, look around outside for uh, mm. for, for a, a, um, a different line of work, uh, which I which I did subsequently find. Well, let's put you back in the air force and go back to 1992. Tell us about soap. Oh yes, soap. Yeah, that's it was the. Uh, it's yeah. not a secret now, by the way, so you can talk <laughs> about it. 
Yeah, SOAP was the uh, the staff officer um, analysis and plans. And uh, what we did was occupational analysis. Yeah, so we had a behavioural scientist uh, exchange officer from the US and a psych and a couple of education officers in the uh, in the section. And, and as a flight sergeant, um, yeah, we uh, we all worked together to uh, conduct some pretty fascinating uh, occupational uh, analyses uh, for for a bunch of career types or job types in, in the Air Force. Yeah, did that for a few years, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. In the reserve side of it, you were involved with the capability as a capability reporting specialist. What do you do there? As a contractor, I would would manage the the system that we operated that recorded and maintained a, a status of all the capability in a particular force element group. So I was a surveillance and, and response group. So all all the all the uh, operational elements are constituted by by capabilities capabilities that you know you know culminate obviously in a you know aircraft you know, weapon system able to, to fly around and and, uh, and do things but uh, all those constituent elements of, of, of the capability were, were bits and pieces that uh, had to be recorded had to be measured and reported on so I was the the civic contractor it was the, the go-between with all the, the commanders and and, uh, and and typically senior officers that would report on on the various mm. capability elements and then I would, uh, you know, punch it all into a, into a system, and it would reported be reported up up the up the chain in a upwards cascading kind of uh, fashion to report to the very to the very uh, you know top elements within the headquarters Air Force on on the state of play of of, uh, of the Air Force's capabilities. Mm. So it was fascinating, and, and in the um, uh, surveillance and response group area, you know, we we had you know, a lot of elements uh, here at Williamtown that uh, really were, were key capabilities. Certainly, including the uh, the radar radar elements at 41 wing, but also the air traffic control elements of, of 44 wing, and the newly acquired Wedgetail aircraft, E7 aircraft, of course, uh, for the newly formed 42 wings. Tell us about the Wedgetail, because you were involved with that as well. Well, I was, and uh, in that role with Kinetic, it was it was really once in a career. You know, function that I had in in bringing on a, a brand new capability to the air force. So that was that was really a uh, a task that I that I really embraced with with gusto because I had to plan out how we we brought that capability onto our system and then started uh, started reporting on it. And it was actually you know I, I commenced that project uh, about a year before we we uh, took delivery of the first aircraft. So we we process mapped uh, 42 wing uh, and two squadron functions. I had a chap that uh, was working with me and. He was the specialist on on inducting all the um, all the tasks that were performed and, and and the sort of capability elements into a program. Got it on the system and and basically brought them online to be reported on as as a, as a capability management area, just like everybody else. You know, within the space of about uh, you know four to six months. So that was a that was a good mm. achievement. Mm. And then from there, because it was the wedge tail and, and quite new, I found myself attracted later on to uh, commencing a role in that modelling capability, which was uh, it was brand new for for the E seven wedge tail and and. And quite fundamental to planning for and, and enabling the the ongoing sustainment of uh, of, of that aircraft it, and, and uh, weapons system. It must feel rather special to know when you res- reflect on your career that you're central to the development and implementation of a new device into the RAAF. It, it, uh, that's right. They they were days that we we're all very proud of, particularly when when you have a, a new uh, and, and fundamentally important 
capability that you're, you're, you're bringing to a weapon system um, in, the, in the modeling capability that we developed, starting it from scratch. You know, I was really lucky that we, we had a great team. It was an integrated team that it, uh, in, in included uh, some of the best um, modeling minds um, in this country, but also a key Boeing uh, modeling specialist from uh, from the US um, and a few other support folks. So it was uh, it was really quite a, a fascinating. It was mm. challenging. We we certainly had our challenges in um, in getting that uh, that modeling capability established, but we, we did it, and it resulted in, in a, you know probably a, a, a nation's best effort with with a with a nine dimensional life cycle cost model mm. uh, and also some some really fundamentally important uh, uh, spares modeling that we achieved um, in the first few years of, yeah. of uh, that, that's fantastic, that Bernie. You think of the Air Force in any country and what immediately comes to mind? Flying planes. Um, But as we have reflected over the various people we've spoken to, the Royal Australian Air Force is a multidimensional organisation with so many roles in addition to flying planes. In your career, did you ever dream of maybe one day I could be a pilot or was the diversity of your roles such that that never even entered your head? Yeah, it probably didn't really enter into the head. I, I I guess I was so busy, I, I guess being involved in in a, a bunch of career lines that uh, I found both interesting and, and and rewarding. I had the opportunity to to fly in a few planes, quite a few aircraft types the the Air Force operated. But being a pilot, I, I guess wasn't uh, wasn't really ever an aspiration. Hmm. So uh, it was not one that I um, pursued. So again, listening to what Bernie's saying, you can see that if you're looking for a career or someone in your family is looking for a career in the Royal Australian Air Force as an option, it doesn't necessarily have to mean you be a pilot. You can be a technician, you can be a radio operator, you can be working at a language school. It is a diverse organisation. Let's assume you're at one of your children's schools, primary school, say, and you're there as a guest speaker to tell the little children what the RAAF is all about. What would you say to them about your career with the Royal Australian Air Force? I would certainly recommend that uh, anybody consider a career in, in the Air Force. You know, Defence does offer some, some very uh, unique and rewarding roles and elements that can, uh, that can formulate a, a, a terrific career. Plenty of unique uh, aspects to a, a career in the ADF that you will simply not achieve anywhere else. And uh, I, I would certainly high rec- highly recommend that uh, anybody with, with any skills have a look what uh, what's on offer. So, so whilst there there aren't quite so many uh, job types as, as there were when, when I first joined, there was 104 back then, but still around 50 or 52 very rewarding roles, only one of which is a pilot. So there's plenty of scope to really uh, carve out a rewarding career, I believe. Okay, so little Johnny puts up his hand and says, Sir, sir, what's it like to wear a uniform? I'd say it's great. You never have to think too much about what you're going to wear that day. But yeah, no, it's it's part of the deal that you wear a uniform. And most people in the in the ADF, I would like to think, wear it with pride. Uh, certainly I did. And uh, when I do a reserve day, I, s- I certainly still do. Bernie, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you very much for your service to an organisation that this year is 100 years old. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you. Globally... The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians 
and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.